15 episodes in now. That's what it is, 15 episodes. Have you started humming that introductory music yet? Have I become part of your Monday morning routine yet? If not, why not? Aren't I good enough for you? Oh, but I am. I'm part of so many Monday morning routines now. A blessing I never saw coming, and you might not have seen it coming either. Welcome back. Twice the Lutheran. This is where your mental health goes for a mental health day. Glad to have you back. I'm Pastor Wells with two L's. Twice the Lutheran. It's an exclusive club. But we're taking applications week by week. Glad to be back with you behind the Lutheran microphone. Glad to have you back with me behind your Lutheran speakers. It's going to be a good week. Don't forget, if you haven't smiled yet this week, do so now. Wait for it. There it is. Gorgeous smile. I'm glad you're smiling along with me. Welcome back for a journey into the most Lutheran content we can content ourselves with this week. More blessed content from Luther's small catechism. If you haven't listened to the episodes thus far, please go back and start the library over with episode one. You'll be glad you did. If you're a long-time listener, and by long time I mean for 14 weeks or so, if you're a long-time listener but you haven't shared the show yet, can you find just one person to share this show with? Or, and here's even better yet, if you're on Facebook, find me on Facebook and share the episode from there. Looking to expand the listening audience. We're down just a skosh, just a skosh. Is that the right word? Can you be down a skosh? We're going we're gonna to Lutheranize that word. It belongs on this podcast now. So if you have time and the ability to do so, please, please share the show. And if you would like to support the show financially, just reach out to me, podcast at twicethelutheran.org, podcast at twicethelutheran.org. We would love to have your partnership. Let's continue on in the catechism. That's the promise of the podcast. I tell you, you're not wasting your time here. We are on the sixth commandment, the hot-button issue of our generation. Here's the sixth commandment one more time for your edification and review. The sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we lead a pure and decent life in words and actions, and that husband and wife love and honor each other. We're talking about purity and decency and strong marriages. That is in focus in this commandment. Part of you being a human being, assuming you are a human being listening to this podcast, Part of you being a human being means that God created you as a sexual being. That is a God-given gift. Don't forget that, first of all. Don't despise it. But that also means there's a proper way and an improper way to use that gift God has given you. Your need and your desire for sexual relationships. And he's given you the ability to exercise that part of your sexual identity as a human being, specifically in marriage. So that's where we're at right now in the, in the uh, catechism. If you're following along with your version, I'm on page 84. The first question that we are going to ask for this week, this Monday morning, or whatever you're listening to this, here it is. As we study how God established marriage, What do we learn about the blessing of the sexual relationship? 
Genesis 2.24, here's what it says. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will remain united to his wife, with his wife, and they will become one flesh. And here's the summary statement. God connects the sexual blessings of marriage to the leaving of a person's father and mother and uniting with a spouse. We call that leave and cleave. If you're an old school Lutheran, you've heard that before. If you're not a new Lutheran, I'm sorry, if you're not and you are a new Lutheran, maybe this is the first time you're hearing that, leave and cleave. That word cleave is interesting because it can mean two opposite things. To cleave, like a meat cleaver, means to separate, like if you're chopping up meat with a meat cleaver. But cleave can also mean like cling to, to unite, so it can mean two opposite things. In this case, we are talking about leaving and cleaving, leaving the parents and clinging to, cleaving to the spouse. I guess technically we could say this is cleaving and cleaving. Doesn't quite have the same ring to it, though. Just makes you sound crazy. What's marriage about? Cleaving and cleaving. What? Leaving. Leaving and cleaving. Here's what it says in the Catechism. A permanent marriage relationship. That's what it is. When you are uniting to your spouse, it is permanent in the sense of lifelong. Nobody. Nobody. Nobody has God's blessing to end their marriage, except for those very specific reasons that we'll talk about coming up. But even then, it's involving sin. Every divorce is a sin, period. Divorce is a sin. What causes divorce? Sin. And divorce itself is a sin. It's, a sa- it's sadness. It's the ending of something that's supposed to be permanent. It's humans ending something that God said he would end. Back in the catechism. If a couple has not publicly declared the promise to establish a permanent marriage, the blessing of the sexual relationship is not to be enjoyed. Some of this gets to the heart of even the Eighth Commandment which is uh, the commandment that is protecting our reputations. But some of that leaks in. All, the, all of the commandments, to a certain extent, overlap with each other, or one leads into the next. So there's an overlapping here in the Sixth Commandment with the Eighth Commandment. Here's what I mean. Your reputation as a Christian is bound with God's, and vice versa. God has bound his reputation with you. So the way you act or don't act as a Christian is a reflection on God's name and reputation, which is one of the reasons why it's so important that we live as God's holy people so that everyone around us can see the God we follow is a holy God and he has holy requirements for his holy people. Now, because we don't do that perfectly, praise be to Christ that he died on the cross for us. Praise be to Christ that he did keep all of those commandments perfectly. So where's the overlap? If you haven't publicly declared that you're living together in marriage, you are still tarnishing a reputation, yours and God's. So like even if people get married in secret, let's say, does, does God give us permission to act that way? Does God give you permission to get married without telling anybody so that everybody thinks you're just living together and sleeping together, but you're not married? You see where the damage is all of a sudden? We want to be public with our Christian lives and our holy living, not so that we can gain the favor or the applause, But we don't want to live in underhanded, deceptive ways. We don't want there to be big question marks about the way we live. So a Christian marriage is one where there is a public declaration. I intend to marry this woman. I intend to marry this man. 
And then the public announcement. We are now married. That's why marriage licenses are public records. It's a good thing. We don't want secret marriages. Now, are there exceptions to that rule? Well, yeah. I mean, there's exceptions to just about every rule, but they should remain just that, the exception. The rule is we publicly apply for a public marriage license. We have a public ceremony in which we publicly declare what's happening, and then we publicly, with public knowledge, live together. There's not supposed to be anything secret about this. And it's in that context that God intends the sexual relationship to find its ultimate fulfillment between a man and a wife who are publicly married. And people assume they're having sex in that marriage. That's a good thing. By the way, the the late in the show warning here, <laughs> this is PG-13. But I'll tell you, it's from the Bible, so we got to talk about it. So that in marriage counseling, it becomes a fair question and an important question to ask the couple. Are you having sex together if you're married? And if the answer is no, and there's no medical reason it should be no, then we got a problem. We got a problem. Married couples should be enjoying as often as they want to the God-given blessing of sex. And when that's not happening, that can be an indication that something's wrong here. Because finally, a whole lot has to go right for a man and a woman to be in bed together, right? Psychologically, emotionally, physically, a whole lot of things have to come together to make the sexual relationship a happy and healthy one. And to the extent that something's getting in the way of that, you need to deal with that. You must deal with that. Let's press on a little bit more yet. Question 70. In what way then? I'm going to back up just a little bit. It says, God designed the sexual relationship to be a blessing of marriage. That is an exclusive statement, by the way. Meaning, the blessing of sex is not to be enjoyed in any way outside of marriage. That is not how God wants that blessing used. And so it's no surprise that for a society that completely rejects that notion, what are we finding? We're finding more and more twisted versions of this blessing so that some have even become convinced that it's not a blessing at all. In fact, it's a curse. It's made the world worse. When the reality is it's the abusing of a gift, not the gift itself, that's made our society worse off. It's the abusing of this gift. How so? Well, that's what the Catechism asks. In what way, then, do some who are not yet married sin against the Sixth Commandment? All right, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5. This is God's will that you be sanctified. I think we talked about this term earlier in the podcast, but it doesn't hurt to review it here. Sanctified is that set apart, you're different, you're special, you're holy. The sanctified for God's use. You don't live in a way that God says you shouldn't live. Why? Because you're God's holy people. You are sanctified. So this is God's will that you be sanctified. Namely, and listen to this, that you keep yourselves away from sexual immorality. That term sexual immorality implies that there is such a thing as sexual morality. And so it is incumbent on us, not just as human beings, but even to a higher degree as God's holy people, to know what that means. What is sexual morality? So that I can live in that. Because it's part of my sanctified life that you keep yourselves away from sexual immorality. Pressing on in the same verse, he wants each of you to learn to obtain a wife for yourself in a way that is holy and honorable, not in lustful passion like a heathen who like the heathen who do not know God. 
obtaining a wife or being a woman to somebody or being a man or being a husband to somebody, it's it yes, it's literal, but it's also a little bit of a euphemism. If you're treating a woman as a wife, that's kind of a euphemism for you're sleeping together, right? Which is again part of the lie. Because you're playing house, you're pretending when you're not married together, you're playing house, that's a sin. We don't do that. Because God's blessing, again, with his reputation aligned with yours, wrapped up in yours to a certain degree, he wants you living in open honesty. Not ashamed of your sexual relationships and your sexual habits, because your sexual relationship and your sexual habits are tied up with your wife and your husband. The way God intended it to be. And what does he warn against here? Lustful passion. Who lives like that? The Bible says like the heathen. Who's that? Who The people who don't know God. And that can be the people who don't know God or the people who reject God or the people who are angry at God. The people who reject all of what God says constitutes as healthy sexual relationship inside a marriage. How do they live? In lustful passion. And those lustful passions take on all sorts of twisted forms, don't they? You just saw maybe in the headlines uh, last week, end of the week here, a male staffer on the Senate hearing floor performing lewd sex acts with another male intended to be posted on a pornographic website. We're going to talk about pornography here in just a few minutes. That is lustful passion. That's exactly what that is. People who are rejecting God will dive into lustful passion. We don't live like them. You can't. Another passage, Genesis 39. Uh, Again, parenthetical. Oh, parenthetical. Genesis 39, 6 through 12. Here's a parenthetical statement that is a summary of what happens. Potiphar's wife tries to entice Joseph into a sexual relationship with her, but he refused. He acknowledged that it would be wicked, a sin against God. That's the biggest thing, by the way, of all sin. All sin is first and foremost a sin against God. And then it's a sin against somebody else. Joseph was the first to recognize this. Not, not the first, but this was the quickest thing he was ready to recognize when he was being enticed by Potiphar's wife and runs out of the house, flees from temptation, quite literally. And he says, if I were to do that, that would be a sin against God. He wasn't worried first and foremost about his relationship with Potiphar, the man's wife. He wasn't first and foremost worried about his relationship with this woman, the boss's wife. What's he worried about? What's he focused on? What about my relationship with God? How do I make sure I don't spoil that? And I want to run away from everything and anything that would spoil that. And so Joseph refuses the advances of Potiphar's wife. Probably, by the way, a, a, could have been a dangerous thing for him to do at that point. She's got a lot of power. All right, the summary then in, from the catechism, the unmarried sin, when they enjoy blessings designed only for marriage, namely... Right, sexual gratification, it's in marriage. Living arrangements that involve enjoyment of the blessings of marriage, you understand what they were saying here, the sexual relationship. So living arrangements that involve a sexual relationship, the blessing of marriage, without the commitment of marriage are contrary to God's will. So the question is not, Is it legal? The question is not, can I get away with it? The question is, does God say I have his blessing to do this? If you are living together outside of marriage, no, you don't have God's blessing for that. If you're enjoying the sexual relationship or giving the impression that you're even enjoying the sexual relationship outside of marriage, no, that's a sin. You don't have God's blessing for that. But it's not just like unmarried people are sinning against the sixth commandment. I don't want to give that impression, and neither does the catechism, because the very next question it brings up is this one. So when do some who are married sin against the sixth commandment? 
Now, this will go deeper than you think. Because maybe you're thinking, well, the married only sin against this commandment if they cheat on their spouse, if they're unfaithful to their spouse. You're only like a quarter right because it goes so much deeper than that. How so? Let me read you the Bible. Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and do not treat them harshly. So the commandment that talks about not just our sexual relationship, but our relationship in general, specifically within the bonds of marriage, forbids, forbids, makes it a sin for a husband to treat his wife harshly. That is a sin. Ladies, don't think you're getting off the hook. Proverbs 21.19, better to live in an arid region than with a nagging and ill-tempered wife. And that's not the only proverb that says something like that. A little bit later, I think it's Proverbs 25.24, and this is not printed in the catechism. You're getting a bonus passage. You're welcome. Proverbs 25.24, better to live on the corner of a roof than in a home shared with a nagging wife. <laughs> Ouch. Oh, oh, man. Hey, and by the way, the guy who wrote that would know something about it. Solomon had a thousand wives. He had a lot of reason to be living up on the roof, I bet. Wives? What would you do if your husband came with you and, and came to you and said, "You are nagging and ill-tempered." Would you argue him on that? Okay, so what would you do if God came to you and said, "You are nagging and ill-tempered?" Are you going to fight with God on that? I hope not. Understand that nagging. I mean, we we joke about it in our society, right? And probably not good to do so. But this is like a, a running motif of marriage jokes is that she's nagging. Not good. God calls that a sin. So husbands and wives, back in the catechism here, husbands and wives sin if their words or actions destroy the loving companionship that is to be part of a marriage. Domestic violence violates the example of love and consideration God intends in a marriage. So men, what is a man's bent, a male's bent with his wife? A man's natural sinful bent is to be harsh and to treat his wife harshly, to be impatient with the women and the children. That is a man's natural bent, and it's sinful. And what is a wife's natural bent? Well, in two different places, the Bible mentions nagging and ill-tempered. That is a sin as well, because both the harsh treatment of a husband and the nagging of a wife destroy the loving companionship. So what's the solution? Well, first and foremost, the solution is found in Christ Jesus, who did not treat us harshly, men. Christ Jesus does not reach down out of heaven and squash you under his thumb every time you mess something up. He could, but he's promised not to, and he hasn't. The Lord is not harsh with you, man. Do not you dare be harsh with your women and children. And when you have fallen, and we all have, men, let's admit it, when we've fallen, go to Christ, because every sin is against him first and foremost. It's against the Lord. Go to the Lord, be restored by forgiveness, and then go back to your wife and children and restore the relationship there too. Wives, what's the natural bent? Nagging. Why? Why is that? Well, you could easily say, and I think you'd have a case to say, because the husband won't get it done. I got to ask him a hundred times. I got to nag him to get it done. Do you? If you want him to do it, then yeah. But is there a different option there? 
Rather than nagging, is there a different option? There is. Open and honest conversation to your husband. I have asked you such and so. You haven't done it. Your refusal to do so is communicating a lack of love to me. So how do you know if you are nagging? Here's a good rule of thumb. Ask for something, follow up on the ask, and then let it go. You could maybe get a third one in there. But beyond three, you're probably nagging. I'm not going to lie. Men, be the kind of man that doesn't need to be nagged. Women, don't nag your men. <laughs> I know, it's so simple. It is so simple when it's just us on our own with the, with the uh, headphones on listening to a podcast. There, we solved it. Just don't be like that anymore. Men, be good. Women, be good. There. Oh, we all know it's so much more nuanced than that, huh? Always. Be gentle. Be patient. Don't nag. How else? That's not the only way. Hebrews 13.4, marriage is to be held in honor by all, and the marriage bad is to be kept undefiled. Again, that's like technically not a euphemism, but it's not saying, you know, the, the actual physical bed, like the mattress itself is the important part. We're talking about the sexual relationship when we're talking about the marriage bed. The marriage bed is to be kept undefiled. For God will judge sexually immoral people and adulterers. Men and women who are married sin if they enjoy sex with anyone other than their husband or wife. It's that, it's that simple. And the catechism says people sin if they are involved in any sexual activity outside of marriage. Now, I want to put a little bit of a, a, a extra nuance on that. When does infidelity begin? Would you really say it's only infidelity if the man or the woman is in bed with somebody other than their spouse? I wouldn't say that. I'd say it began long before that. The infidelity begins oftentimes first and foremost with an emotional affair. So many people might be aware that somewhere down the road an affair could result from my relationship with this or that woman or this or that man. If you are seeding the ground, if you're tilling up the ground to give a possible wicked fruit of adultery, stop tilling the ground. Stop planting the seeds. I want to give you life advice here. Maybe that's not always popular, but I'm going to do it anyways. <laughs> Women, you cannot have male friends. Men, you cannot have female friends. Period. Now, I know that's a little bit of an overstatement. But it is improper, improper for a woman to be hanging out with a man who is not her husband. To be hanging out casually or socially, improper, completely improper. Because at best, at best, you are tilling the ground to give fruit for adultery. And at worst, you're already being an adulterer. And at double worst, people are thinking, what's going on there? That ain't her husband she's out to dinner with. What's going on here? Women, uh, men, same thing. You don't have female friends. No way. That is improper. That is inappropriate. You should not be meeting privately or individually with women except for in very rare circumstances. What are those circumstances? You're in a position of being a professional counselor or something like that. And even then, there are very specific safeguards there. You want to avoid any appearance of impropriety. You want to avoid any questions that there's improper things happening. You want to avoid any temptation that would give birth to improper things. Be very ever so careful with this approach. Then your physical contact. And not just sexual physical contact. Physical contact in general is with your wife. Okay? 
Don't be rubbing another lady's shoulders, holding another lady's hand, things like that. Nope, that's inappropriate. And vice versa for the for the wife to her husband. Don't do it. Did I speak strongly enough on that point? <laughs> yeah, you almost have to nowadays in 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 the twenty first century. We have so many twisted conceptions of what constitutes proper relationships that actually completely cross the lines into impropriety all the stinking time. All the time. All right, let's press on a little bit more. Now, what about what about divorce then? What about the ending of a, of a marriage before death has come? The Bible has something to say about that. Matthew 19.9, I tell you that whoever divorces his wife, except on the grounds of her sexual immorality and marries another woman, is committing adultery. Let's pause with that one first. Matthew 19 does say, Divorce is allowed on the grounds of sexual immorality. I pray, God, none of you have to go through that. And if you have, then you know how painful that can be. Whether you are the victim of a spouse cheating on you or you have been the cheater, you know how devastating and life-altering this can be. But the Lord does say, if it's happened you may have spoiled the relationship with your spouse to the point where they just cannot get over it. That's not to say there's not forgiveness for it. That's not what we're saying at all. But forgiveness does not eliminate consequences, right? Now, what happens What happens if, if somebody has cheated, but the spouse is willing to still work on it? Well, in those cases... If you are the one that has been cheated on, the approach that I've used is simply this. If you've been cheated on, you have had your trust completely shattered and broken. Now, you might be able to forgive your spouse who cheated on you, but you also have to realize there is a difference between forgiveness and trust. Just because I forgive you, it don't mean I trust you. And so oftentimes, if you're going to rebuild the marriage, if you've decided we're going to rebuild from this act of infidelity, you don't want to make the person earn your forgiveness. But you do need to have them rebuild your trust. So if you've been a victim of somebody's infidelity, then you have to be very clear. This is what it will take for you to rebuild my trust. I need to know where you are all, you know, uh, if you're not at home and not at work or whatever. I need to know. You need to be accountable to me with your time. You need to be accountable to me with your money. I need to make sure you're not going to this location anymore. So the person who's a victim in that case should be very upfront and very clear and very honest. This is what it will take for me to rebuild trust in this relationship. And then the person who is the offender, the person who did the cheating, must comply and submit. Now don't go crazy and don't go to, don't go outlandish and things like that. The person still does have to go to work and home and things. So you can't say the only way to rebuild trust is you got to sit at home on your duff all day long. Okay, probably not going to work. But then the offender needs to needs to comply if they're going to rebuild that relationship. And to the extent that they say no, I'm not willing to do those things, well then you're then you're basically de facto saying then then you're not willing to be married anymore. In which case the Bible does allow for divorce. Because the Bible recognizes somebody can be so grievously injured through that act of infidelity that they just can't get over it mentally, emotionally, physically. That's kind of sad to talk about, but we're not done talking about it, unfortunately, because there's one other case. 1 Corinthians 7.15, If the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not bound in such cases, and God has called us to live in peace. Paul was dealing with the with this situation where people were coming to faith and 
they were wondering, how can I, as now a Christian who's come to faith, but I'm married to an unbelieving husband, let's say, how could I, as a believer, be married to an unbeliever? And how could I get in bed with the unbeliever? Yuck, I couldn't possibly do that. Because I'm holy and they're not. Now, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not too much. And so Paul had to make the point, now hold on a minute, just because you came to faith does not now give you permission to end your marriage to an unbeliever. If the unbelieving spouse is willing to stay and stay married to you as you are now a believer, then, then let that be. Then keep the marriage intact. But if the person wants to leave, if the unbeliever leaves, Paul says, 1 Corinthians seven fifteen, let him leave. You can't tie him down. He's going to leave or she's going to leave. The brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God's called us to live at peace, meaning if your spouse just takes off, you don't get to be held prisoner by that. And so God does allow the marriage, the divorce to be, to be filed at that point. Now what's happening as you're filing the divorce, you're basically recognizing that the marriage has been violated. That the divorce has already happened, so to speak. This is now the public declaration and legal follow-up. The marriage is over. So by the time the paperwork's filed, the, the damage has been done. Now what about that, this, we call that desertion, leaving. There are two qualifications for that. That's a weird thing to say. <laughs> two qual- if you want to do this, you've got to hit two qualifications. There's two markers that a desertion has happened. Number one, it's unilateral, meaning one person out of the two chose it. You cannot just both choose to abandon each other. That's sin on both parts now. So the desertion was unilateral. One person decided to leave. And the other qualification, it's persistent. They didn't just, like, go to the grocery store. Oh, you abandoned me. I got I to gotta file for divorce now because you left the house. That would fail to meet that second marker of desertion. Unilateral, one person's choosing it and persistent. It's happening all the time. Now, here's one more follow-up question to that. Does a person have to physically leave the house for an abandonment to have happened? What if they're physically present but emotionally and mentally completely checked out and neglecting and it's happening all the time? And what happens if that persists beyond pleading and begging of the spouse, I need you to engage, I I need you to be here, I need you to engage with me mentally and emotionally and physically? You like what if what if the guy's the guy come home comes home from work disappears, you know, up to the attic to play a video game till 2 in the morning, you know, goes to bed and gets up and goes goes to work the next day, never sees his spouse, never sees the kids, never checks in, never asks how things are going. Then all of a sudden money starts disappearing because, I don't know, whatever. He's just so out of touch. And now she's begging and, and she's telling him, this is a problem, this is a problem, we need to go to counseling, we need to work on this, I can't live like this. And he just consistently persists in this in this emotional you know abandonment and to a certain degree physical he's upstairs he ought to, he's physically not present can that be grounds for divorce yeah it can be yes yep it can be now the same is true you know financially can somebody financially abandon abandon his family well yeah i've heard of cases where guys you know they're 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 spending tons of money on on pornography, which is a sin. We'll talk about that. They're ton- spending lots of money on like phone sex is one one example I've heard in the past. I, and don't get me wrong, this is not from my ministry. This is not from uh, my home congregation. This is from just wider out there stories that I've heard. Okay, does that constitute abandonment? It can. Yeah, it can. Not only is that a, a sin in, of abandonment, I mean, at some point you're saying he's having an affair with these ladies over the phone. Let's press on a little bit more. Uh, let me give you the summary statement. People sin if they divorce their spouses for any reason other than marital unfaithfulness and desertion. Those are the allowable reasons for a divorce. 
All right, let's let's uh, press on a little bit more. Here's the next question in the catechism. In what ways can both married and unmarried sin against the sixth commandment? Matthew 5, 27, 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, when does that happen? Maybe you're picturing in your head just walking on the street and you, and you see an attractive woman. Certainly that qualifies as adultery because you're doing stuff in your head that you shouldn't be doing. But when does this really happen? We're talking about pornography here. Ephesians 5, 3 through 5, do not let sexual immorality, any kind of impurity or greed even be mentioned among you as is proper for the saints. Obscenity, foolish talk, and coarse joking are also out of place. Don't be a pig. Instead, give thanks. Certainly you're aware of this. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater. How, is that, how are they idolaters? They're honoring those things above God. Such a person is an idolater. They don't have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ, who is God. In Ephesians 5.12, it is shameful even to mention the things that are done by people in secret. Pornography is a complete sin against the sixth commandment. I know society speaks about it differently. I know society jokes about this. I know society will even admit that only some parts or versions of pornography are, are bad and some are good and healthy and natural. The reality is none of it is good, none of it is healthy, none of it is natural. Now, why is it so prolific then in our society? Well, there's a bunch of reasons it's so prolific. Let me give you just a couple. Number one, marketing. We all know this. Sex sells. And guys are visual. Marketers have figured this out a long, long time ago. No matter what the product is, if I can get a scantily clad pretty women, woman to sell it, the likelihood of a wallet opening up is higher. And so women, especially, listen to me, trust me when I tell you, this society is targeting your men. Even if they're not looking for it, it will be targeted at them. Billboards, magazines in the magazine rack, walking through in public, the way women are dressing. Okay, this is targeted at your men. Understand that Satan is out. He knows if he can get the men, he can have an easier time with the rest of the family. And he knows that men are going to be tempted sexually. And they're very visual. Another factor, back in the day, if you were going to get a dirty magazine, it had to be just that. It had to be a magazine, which meant you had to show up physically at a store and show your face. And you had to pay some money. And that was just enough of a barrier that would maybe keep some people from indulging in pornography or encountering pornography. And society was at least a little bit more decent 50, 60, 70 years ago that such things were rarely spoken of. They were sold in the back room and they were hidden. So there was at least a little bit of a layer of protection there. Now, pornography is completely anonymous. It's immediately accessible and it's free. There have been studies that show that pornography uh, can light up a man's brain or a person's brain. Let me say it that way. I don't want to say that women aren't tempted by this stuff. Uh, the Pornography can light up a brain in the same pathways, in the same way that a drug does. Now you tell me, what drug is out there that is completely anonymous and free and immediately accessible? I only know of one. Pornography. Now, the statistics tell me that a good majority of you men that are listening to this podcast either do struggle or have struggled with this. So you know what I'm talking about. 
Now, if it gets, if it's getting, uh, if it's got real bad, it can get to the level of an addiction. And usually, there's a lot of definitions for like, how do you know something's an addiction? But usually, if this is bad enough that it's interrupting your life and your money and your schedule and your time, now it's at a level of an addiction. And the reality is, you cannot break addiction on your own. I've heard a thousand and one people tell me, I got it, Pastor, I got it, I got it. And I tell them, no, you don't. You don't got it. Unless you're taking some drastic changes, you don't got it. The only way that I have found for somebody to get out from a cycle of addiction, and this could be drinking or drugs or more prolifically pornography, you know what it is? You have to tell somebody. Satan keeps you in a shame loop. He keeps you locked to a sin through shame. And the only way out from being locked in an addiction is to confess that it's happening. And the minute you do that, Satan cannot lock you in it anymore. Somebody uses pornography. And then they feel guilty because they use pornography. And how do they deal with the guilt? Pornography. Do you see the the cycle? Use, shame, coping, use. It's like a cycle that goes around and around. The only way to break that, confess what you got going on. You need reinforcements. If you are a listener and this is a real struggle for you, go ahead and send me an email. I'd be glad to help you. I have resources that I can send you. Um, Our Synod has a program, More Than Conquerors, that's out there. Not a program, like a a resource. Let's say it that way. Uh, More Than Conquerors, I think that's what it's called. If I got that wrong, somebody email me and tell me. And the same goes for women, too. You, you have to confess this sin. You have to find help to get out of the, if it's, if it's addiction or if you've been stuck in this. Don't let Satan hold you captive. Don't let him keep you captive to shame. It, we can deal with this. When Christ died on the cross, he died for this sin, too. His blood is powerful enough to forgive this sin, too. And there is real freedom and health on the other side of this. So if this is an issue for you, Don't sit with it anymore by yourself. Now, on on that same token, if you've got boys, if you've got sons like I do, man, this is, I pray about this, guys. I'm not going to lie. This is something constantly on my radar. You got to keep the boys away from this stuff. By the grace of God and by his protection, he kept me away from it. I know it was around me. I'm a public school kid. Of course I was around. And it was around It was around then, uh, 20 years ago. You think it's gone away? I bet not. I bet there's more of it. And you know what they found out about pornography? It's like a drug. You need more twisted stuff the deeper you get into it. So it will always give birth to more fetishes and violence. And finally, what, why is it even a, a sin against the fifth commandment? Because it robs the woman on the screen of her identity. That's what we call objectifying women. The, the, the person, and that's what it is on the screen, although nowadays it's so much AI. But even then, don't, don't be indulging in it because it's still the images of a person. Don't objectify women that way. Don't objectify men that way. Those are people. Keep your kids away from this stuff. If your kids are phone users or iPad or tablet users, boy, you got to have safeguards in place. There's rules at my house, and we don't have kids with iPads and things, uh, iPhones and things. We got a tablet, we got computers, but I'll tell you what: you better make sure you have safeguards. In my house, the rule is no one uses a computer or a screen in a room that's that's locked away where no one can walk in randomly. There's got to be accountability here. And that's not communicating a lack of trust. That's just saying, I know there's real dangers here for my boys. I know that they're being targeted through all this stuff. Whether they're looking for it or not, it's going to find them. All right, let me give you this. The Sixth Commandment forbids, this is back in the Catechism, page 87. The Sixth Commandment forbids sexual immorality. That includes sexual intercourse outside of marriage, Incest, rape, sexual abuse, obscene jokes, and the use of pornography. All of that's included. 
serving as a mirror, the sixth commandment shows that we are sinning by having lust in our hearts. And that's where it comes from, friends. By speaking coarse, demeaning, and suggestive words, and by taking delight when these immoralities are the focus of our entertainment or the gossip we hear. There is no way that we got this far in this commandment alone that you haven't seen yourself. Just based on where society is, I know you've been targeted. You can't have the vain images of the human body shoved in your mind 24-7, basically, and not have some twisted thoughts pop out. I know you see yourself here because God created you as a sexual being and you are naturally sinful. So what's the solution in a world that is just rife with this temptation all over the place? In a world that is targeting especially men, but everybody, what's the solution? You're not surprised to hear me say it at this point, friends, because you're twice the Lutheran. The solution is Christ. You have seen your failures. Bring them to the cross. You have a real sense of what your shame has been in this commandment. Bring it to the cross. And if God has so blessed you to bring you brothers and sisters in Christ that you can confide in, do so. And then arm, and so arm yourself against this temptation and against this commandment. My friends, there is no sin that is too big. There is no sin that is so addictive and so entrapping that Christ Jesus cannot set you free from it and subsequently armor, arm you against it. That is true with this sin too. The blood of Christ has brought real forgiveness for real sinful people. That's you and me. And centered in Christ, he gives us the pathway by which we can healthfully, in a God-pleasing way, express our sexuality in marriage. My friends, be vigilant with yourselves. Be vigilant with your children, especially on this commandment. This is a big one. In fact, it's so big. We ain't even done with it yet. I told you we'd be on this one. But if I pressed on any longer, you would stop listening. And so in order to make sure that doesn't happen, it is time for me to say fare thee well. Goodbye, my friends, you lovely, lovely people. Join me again next week. Until then, hasta la bye-bye.